The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. And by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers right to your door everything you need to create a home-cooked meal. Farm-fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious dinner in 40 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com slash gist to get your first two meals free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Can I talk to you, Nebraska? Nebraska, can I talk to you for a second? Just a little. Who the hell do you think you are? All right. It used to be cute. I love that trivia question. What's the only state with a unicameral legislature? Nebraska. Then that whole thing about splitting votes in the electoral college. I thought that was kind of weird. I didn't judge, right? Technically, the president can split Nebraska's votes means too, but it actually happened in 2008. Obama lost Nebraska, but to get one of its electoral votes. So that was a little weird. Now you got this thing going on. All right. The state of Nebraska went for Donald Trump and for Hillary Clinton, though on the Democratic side, not clear how much it mattered. Nebraska delegates were actually selected in caucuses back in March when Sanders received a majority. Huh? What? There was a vote yesterday in Nebraska, but it didn't count because a week before that, there was a vote that did count. So what they did in Nebraska was what used to be called a beauty contest, a an election that had no consequence and awarded no delegates. You got to stop calling it a beauty contest. A couple reasons, pretty inherently sexist. Too many anchors would be tempted to make a joke that would get them suspended if they're on CNN or a raise if they're on Fox. Plus, the Republican nominee actually owns a beauty contest, so that seems unfair. The Omaha World News report on this election that did not matter. In Nebraska primary wins, Donald Trump got extra validation. Hillary Clinton claims symbolic victory. Neither of those things are good. One is useless. The other could come back to haunt us in the end. And on MSNBC, Steve Kornacki played the results of this election that didn't matter or count for anything this way. The decision desk here at NBC is not going to be calling this race. They're just going to let the returns come in and see what happens. But the Associated Press about 15 minutes ago looked at the returns and they said they are calling Nebraska for Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. You know, decision desk, sometimes when you decide not to decide, you still have made a decision. But then again, if the decision desk decides not to decide, I suppose it just becomes a desk. And since it's not literally a desk, but a series of people who are clustered around desk-like apparati, you'll become nothing pretty soon, decision desk, unless you continue to make decisions. Here was the results of that vote. Hillary Clinton, 41,819 votes. Bernie Sanders, 36,691 votes. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all. The one that does matter is the closed caucus that happened before, and there Sanders won more delegates. He won 15 to Hillary's 13. He got 19,000 votes. She got 14,000 votes. So again, to recap, the one that counts drew 34,000 voters to the polls. The one that doesn't count drew almost 80,000 voters to the polls. And I'm not saying it's unfair, though I got to say, if this were the other way around and Bernie won the popular vote and Hillary won the closed primary, but more delegates, oh, the caterwauling, oh, the strident harping, oh, the screeching about fairness and process and subverting the will of the people. But it doesn't matter. 
This is the business that they've chosen, beauty contest and all. On the show today, I spiel about political things that I know only because I have an unfair advantage, I remember them. But first, Maria Konnikova is here to talk about what happens when your penchant for pornography becomes more than a mere predilection. From time to time, I talk about Harry's Razors, not just with you, my audience, but with my dad, members of my family. They were my first audience. They're the ones to blame. So anyway, well, let me tell you about Harry's. They cost a lot less than razors that you buy in the store and they're quality blades. I think they last a little longer too. But what my dad said, because I've been doing these Harry's ads for a while, he used the code that I'm going to give you to get $5 off his first set. And what he told me is, great for the head. He's a bald man. I'm a balding man. He's already got there, right? I'm just aspiring to his state of baldness. And the thing that keeps his baldness so very bald turns out to be a Harry's razor. Harry's starter set, which is called the Truman, is a great option for new customers. Here's the deal. For $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. And there's a special offer for GIST fans. $5 off if it's your first purchase. You enter promo code GIST. So go to harrys.com right now. Mostly for the face, I'd say, but as my dad says, if you want to do it on the head, it works great. Order the Truman set, that'll be $10. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code GIST at checkout to get $5 off and to help support the GIST. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. I know it when I see it, Judge Potter Stewart once said, quite famously, of pornography. Actually, that's a bit of a truncated quote. The full circumstance was Judge Potter Stewart actually said, leave me alone. I'm watching pornography. Oh, no, I know it when I'll see it. Now, I don't want to malign the great justice's memory, but I do want to talk about watching pornography maybe when you don't want to watch pornography. Yes, that's right. There are times when people don't want to watch pornography, and when they do watch it, they're said to be addicted. Porn addiction is that bullshit. And joining me now, a returning champion and an expert in the case of Jacobellis versus Ohio in 1964. No, it's the author of The Confidence Game, Maria Konnikova, who is our guide to scientific claims that are and aren't bullshit. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. So I think before we get into porn addiction, what's the working definition, the real good legal science definition of addiction? Because we use the phrase pretty casually, but uh, there must be a real definition. There is. And that definition has a lot to do with how our brain responds to a stimulus. Mm-hmm. Normally, whenever you get something rewarding, let's say chocolate there's a response in your brain, a dopamine response. So you get all sorts of fun things happening. And so you enjoy it. It gives you a pleasure response and you want more of it. You want to recreate it. What ends up happening with addiction is that you start needing more and more of the stimulus to get that same response. Mm -hmm. Chocolate, you can't actually be addicted to chocolate. But if you could be addicted to chocolate, you would need, you know, now instead of one bite, you'd need the entire chocolate bar. Suddenly you need two chocolate bars to get the same sort of response because the reward system gets blunted. Something ends up happening to the neural circuitry of the brain so that you can't get the same 
rush from the same amount. Now, there's also a problem of self-control. So you want to control it. Part of the, you know, you, you've seen those t-shirts, I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholics think they have a problem. Yes. It's, yes. A, it's among it's a, the more hilarious yes. t-shirts. Of yeah. course. And of sensitive. Course. And sensitive. Yes. yes. It's, it's of the mustache ride ilk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But there's actually a grain of truth to that because part of the definition is that you want to stop, mm-hmm. but you can't. So you have a self-control issue that even though you might say, you know what, I don't want chocolate, you still yeah. eat the chocolate and you have a hard time actually exercising any sort of frontal control. And I mean frontal because the fr- frontal part of your brain is is where that actually happens. And so it starts with kind of that very emotional, primitive part of the brain, but it very quickly transitions to an issue of your higher functions not being able to work the way that you want. Um, you also get cravings. So you start wanting chocolate even when you don't have chocolate. Mm. You start to, so your learning circuitry changes because now there are lots of things that you associate with chocolate that suddenly make you crave chocolate. So for instance, the sound of the wrapper unwrapping. Those things alone can trigger that sort of response. Or a reference to Gary or New Orleans, which P-Funk and then Mayor Ray Nagin talked about becoming a chocolate city. Exactly. Right. So although with uh, some substances, they say you don't have a problem until you start doing it alone, I think with porn, it might be the opposite. (laughs) But so I understand what you're saying, that we could take these things that we know you really can't have an addiction to, and we'll get to if porn addiction is real. In fact, that's why we're here. I could see grafting that on. To the idea of porn. Yeah, people say that I start craving it and that I can't stop myself and that I need higher doses. So in the beginning, one night nurse, one stewardess, that was fine. Eventually, it's a whole ward of nurses, a whole fleet of stewardesses. Yep. And you can't, you want to respond to to just one stewardess and you can't. No. Right. And then you, it tells you this is the argument of people who are pro porn addiction. By pro porn addiction, I mean pro. They think it exists. Yes. They they think it exists. Their argument is that then you can't relate to normal sexual stimuli. So you want your girlfriend, your wife, your boyfriend, your husband. Let's not be, let's not be gendered here. Um, you want them to perform somehow in a more heightened way because you can't get aroused. Yeah. Your, partner is that chocolate bar, but mm-hmm. a chocolate bar just doesn't do it for you anymore because you've eaten so much chocolate. So how would we go about trying to test if porn really is an addiction, if, if there is this lack of control and you need more of it? So we know what the what the neural response looks like, and we know what some of the signatures are. So we know that over time, dopamine response gets dampened. We know that how it affects memory. We know that there is a rerouting of memory circuits. So you can see all sorts of these effects. And so what you do is you actually put someone in a scanner Mm -hmm. and you have them watch pornography, different Mm -hmm. types of pornography, and you look at the neural signature and say, okay, does this actually look like the neural signature of an addict? So are you getting that dopamine rush from the beginning? How high is it compared to someone who doesn't say they have a porn addiction? Obviously, there's a bit of a selection thing here because someone has to say, I have a porn addiction and come into the lab. And unlike someone with a cocaine addiction, it's not like you can have an external verification source where you can see someone is an addict mm-hmm. versus, you know, I've taken Coke once, but I've decided I'm an addict and I'm coming in. So with pornography, it is, you know, you rely on self-report to a large extent. And so you see what happens and you say, okay, 
are your neural responses the same as someone who's not a porn addict? Is your pleasure system, is your reward system working the same way? Or is it dulled? So if I, if I have someone come into the lab who's an alcoholic, I'll see their reward system is quite dulled in reference to someone who's not an alcoholic. So we can do the exact same comparison. That's the first step. And but, then, but can I stop you? Sure, it seems sure. that with drugs, we're talking about introducing an actual chemical. Yes. That effect seems logical. Chemical goes in, affects chemical of brain. So the, are there some addictions that have nothing to do with the outside chemical or are all these addictions? Is there such a thing as gambling addiction? Is there such a thing as shopping addiction? Do any of these other so-called non-outside-influence you know, chemicals actually show up in the way that a cocaine would? So, so what you're talking about right now are behavioral addictions. Yes. And this is an entire area of psychology where people are asking, do behavioral addictions exist? And the only one that has enough evidence to to be included in the DSM, and it was not in the DSM-4, it's a new addition to the DSM-5 um, when that was revised a few years ago, is gambling. I knew you were going to say gambling. Um, but everything else, there's no internet addiction, there's no shopping addiction. Right. Um, none of these things have been documented. There's a different thing when someone says, I'm addicted to social media. Yeah. And where we can actually say, you are addicted to social media because we can check off all of these boxes. With gambling, you can check off. You see those You see those responses. You see the dopamine changes. You see the inhibition problems. You see, you know, you see... You need the, more of it. You need a bigger wager to get off as so, it were. Yeah. So you see all of that happening with gambling. Um, you don't see it with any other behaviors. So with the and, porn, what don't you see? You don't see right. it's not true that you need more intense porn? So two things with porn. One, there was a study done a few years ago by Nicole Prowse, who was until recently at UCLA. She now went into the private sector. But she did this study where she did exactly that. She looked at how much stimulation do you need to get the same reward cues. And she found the opposite. So people who watch a lot of pornography, so first she monitored, you know, how much porn do you do you watch normally? It turns out that people who watch a lot of pornography become more sensitive to all erotic stimuli. So something that someone who doesn't watch a lot of pornography would say, oh, okay, sort yeah. of stimulating. Someone who watches pornography is actually even more aroused by it. Right. So it's the opposite. You don't need more. You basically, you love all sexual stimuli, no right. matter where they come from. Right. So that, Anytime the pizza delivery guy accepts an alternate form of payment, to the layman, it's like, yep. well, that's weird. But to the porn addict, yep. game on. Yeah. That's the first red flag that this isn't actually an addiction. And the other one is that you don't need more and more and more. There is no relationship between the intensity of the pornography and how rewarding it is. So because you respond to, you know, one stewardess the same way you respond to three stewardesses. So there's no kind of diminishing return. It's not that you need more and more to get that arousal. That doesn't happen either. So Why do people think it does? Why do people convince themselves that they need more? Well, I I draw this back to the no fap movement. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure, of course. So closely linked to both the never Trump movement and the anti fracking <laughs> movement. Yeah. So so for those of of us who don't know what the NoFap movement <laughs> is. Um, fap is this noise that was taken from Japanese manga porn um, because it's what they what they put on to, to signify the noise that you make when you masturbate. Uh-huh. And NoFap is a movement to say no masturbation yeah. because the logic behind it is that when you watch pornography, 
you masturbate and that drains you. And so you become. Wait, hold on. Go back now. How do people use. What? (laughs) Have I been doing it wrong? What? Crazy. And so you drain your energies. And so you become less manly. Mm -hmm. This is is a a male movement. And so you you become less of a man. Mm -hmm. And so no fap means you swear off masturbation. And that often means swearing off pornography so that you bottle your manhood rather than letting your manhood spill out. Well, maybe that's the movement, but it can be for other reasons. Like you're not getting out of the house. It's you have six or seven, you know, times a day that sure. you have to do it. You could just free up some free time. Sure. There are many reasons not to fap. Yes. And many reasons to fap. Yes. Lots yes. of reasons. Most internet sites are. Okay. So the no fap movement, I love saying that, they're <laughs> the ones who what, perpetuate the myth? They're the ones who perpetuate the myth of pornography addiction. I, I, because I also, to them, those yeah. two arg- arguments go hand in hand. But it is but, true that some people, whether convinced or not, some people, people usually don't start in with, you know, crazy octopus porn. They get there, they, you know, they start with the stewardess and they maybe several steps away, they get to the octopus. And then when they're at the crazy octopus porn, and I'm not judging, if the octopuses aren't hurt, but when they get there, it's pretty logical to say, I'm an addict. I needed to up the intensity. That seems real. I can see why it would seem real. Well, so here's the thing. First of all, we don't really have good data on that because the only people who can provide the data are the, the porn providers. Yeah, and they're not leaving their house, right? Um, oh, I thought you no, meant the users. No, the companies. Right. Yeah. They refuse to make it public because there's a lot of competition and they want it's proprietary. Mm-hmm. So when I, I did this big piece on pornography addiction um, a little over a year ago, and no, they wouldn't give me anything because for them it's really important because they they want this user base to stay theirs. There's very little evidence that it's a causal mechanism that's watching pornography makes you want to watch more extreme pornography. All of the data show that the people who already hold kind of violent and debased attitudes toward women a priori who have a lot of other kind of issues they're the ones who seek out the more extreme porn so the people who seek out the less extreme porn it's not like they're suddenly going to start going more and more extreme so if i'm going to throw out another theory we're saying extreme but maybe there's another side of it that's just specific and until you start you know going on whatever the most well-known porn site is then you find oh i'm really into exactly and you don't know octopus i come back to octopus. And who knows? And who knows? Yeah. Maybe octopus is the first thing that you discovered because, yeah. for instance— And then that's the gateway to calamari. I didn't know that there was such a thing as tentacle porn until I started <laughs> researching this. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I start hearing tentacle porn. So what's one of my first Google searches? Of course, it's tentacle porn. Yeah. I need to see what this is. For me, it wasn't a gateway drug. It was an oh, oh type of thing. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, different people. And people who like that might not like— other forms of pornography. Right. I don't know how graphic we want to get here. Crush but. videos, let's say. <laughs> However, I do have to say the fact that gambling addiction mm-hmm. has been proven to be a behavioral addiction, this to me at least allows for the possibility that some of these other claims we might find that there is an addiction. It seems fascinating to me that just by convincing yourself that something good is going on in your head, you can behave like with all the classic signs of an addict. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that one of the things we do have to point out is that 
sometimes you just need more evidence. And sometimes the evidence isn't there yet, but you'll get there eventually. What I will say about pornography is that the evidence we do have often points in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And we do have a lot of good evidence that, you know, viewing pornography can often actually, you know, improve attitudes toward women and do a lot of positive things. And so it's, it's one of these things that we really want to be true. We want pornography addiction to be a thing. So I think we need to be even more skeptical. Um, and we also need to realize that this only exists in very specific societies, this concept of pornography addiction, because a lot of it, and I think you alluded to this earlier, um, there's a lot of social discomfort in certain areas of society around pornography. And the moment you have that, you have guilt, you have conflicting emotions, you have yeah. people feeling bad about a behavior that in another society might be totally normal and more in the open. And then you don't have someone saying, and I'm, I'm an addict. They say, oh, you know, yeah, I, I watch porn now and then. My wife and I love to do it together. Right. And, and I'm sure another thing that's going on is wife finds the husband. Uh, I'm an addict. I can't help myself. I'll go into a 12-step program. There's someone yeah. who has a 12-step yeah. program that would... Uh, that would help that person. All right. So I want to do this in two parts. Sure. Or I want to, the easy part is why we say we're here, but I think the implication is more interesting. So porn addiction, is that bullshit? Yes. So far, as far as we know, that's bullshit. Now, here's the question. Believing that it's not bullshit, does the, how does that hurt? How does that hurt porn users? How does that hurt our understanding of human nature? What's the downside to believing that? there is such a thing as porn addiction. Well, I think it really kind of makes your relationship with sexuality suspect. Mm -hmm. it, it, I think it's something that can really have negative repercussions on your a lot of your relationships and on the way that you understand human sexuality, period. One of the things that is hurtful about pornography is in the United States, at least, we don't have an open and honest conversation about sex. I mean, it's still very much taboo. Most people just get sex ed in school, and that is not incredibly helpful. And so when, when we get into trouble is when people look at pornography as a learning script, that this is the way sex is because right. you don't have an alternative, not realizing that it's fantasy, that this is actually the Hollywood of life. Or the sea world, porn, depending yes, on that your porn, porn is to bent. sex, yes, yes, as Hollywood is to real life. Got it. And people don't really realize that. And so I think misunderstanding pornography as addiction, it has all sorts of implications for how you see yourself, you know, you see yourself as deviant, you know, you see... Right, it's shaming. Yeah. It is shaming. It's yeah. definitely shaming. And it also, I mean... They would say it's not. They would say it's not your fault. It's it's an addiction. I mean, there's an argument to the people who are selling the 12-step programs. I would say it's liberating to realize sure. it's an addiction and you're not really in control. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I'll, I'll, well it's liberating, but it's also, it also absolves you of responsibility to say... I'm not in control. This is just my brain. Right. You know, it's not It's not your brain. Um, your brain actually loves all sorts of pleasures. That tells you something good about you. You're easy to stimulate, which is great. It's freeing in a way to realize, you know what, if this is not a problem, then I approach it in a very different way. It's just like when you realize that something is an addiction or what being an addiction means. If you realize that being an addiction doesn't mean you're sick, it means that over time your brain has learned different reward pathways. Well, that changes how we think about addiction. So I think a lot of these same arguments can be can be made when it comes to pornography. Maria Konnikova, when it comes to the detection of scientific claims of questionable nature, she knows it when she sees it or smells it. The author of The Confidence Game, Maria Konnikova, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with great ingredients, you make great meals. Incredible meals, you might say. 
insofar as the ingredients themselves are incredible. They set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. So maybe we're talking about Japanese ramen noodles. Maybe we're talking about wild-caught Alaskan salmon, heirloom tomatoes. Basically, if it's a really good food that requires one or two adjectives or adjectival phrases beyond it, it could make its way into a Blue Apron meal and then could make its way onto your plate. Blue Apron ships you the food. They keep it nice and cool. Even if there's no one to answer the door, it's waiting for you. You unpack it and people will say, Mom, is that a wild-caught Alaskan salmon? And you'll say, yes, but I'm your dad. It's really easy. I'm not a cook, but the step-by-step instructions really can't be screwed up. You can prepare the meal in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash gist. You'll really like cooking it. It'll really feel like, my God, I made a great meal for my family because you did creating incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Do not wait. Go to blueapron.com slash gist. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now the spiel. You must remember this. When assessing a claim in the present, in my experience, you know what helps? Experience, actual experience, actually having lived through the thing that they're talking about. Let's take Hillary Clinton. Right now, Hillary Clinton doesn't do so well with voters in the trustworthiness rubric. She scores rather low. 51% of voters in Florida say Clinton is not honest and trustworthy in a Quinnipiac University poll. In Ohio, that number climbs to 53% and 54% in Pennsylvania. She's in deep trouble because, as reflected in a Washington Post, ABC News national poll a couple months ago, just 37% of people believe Hillary Clinton is, quote, honest and trustworthy, while 57% of people say she's not. 57% say untrustworthy. And while polls do reveal that voters think that Hillary, quote, gets things done, the problem is that she just doesn't have that connection to the voters, like her husband like the man she calls that natural politician, Bill Clinton. And yet, something was bothering me about this, and it's because I remember. I remember towards the end of the Clinton presidency, Bill Clinton presidency, but before the Lewinsky scandal hit, there were some polls out. And it's not only the mental archives, it's the actual archives where I looked this up. And in 1997, 64% of voters told Pew that the president was able to get things done. That is almost the exact same percentage that Hillary Clinton enjoys today, but only 47% describe him as trustworthy and 45% thought he was someone who keeps his promises. So Hillary Clinton is very much like golden boy Bill Clinton, the one she's always compared to unfavorably in the eyes of voters. Another thing that's going on, right now there's all this talk about the Trump phenomenon can be explained by looking at downwardly mobile working class white men. We have this weird situation in America, right? Even though the overall economy is good and unemployment is relatively low, those working class white men, they're taking it on the chin harder and therefore they're not sharing to the extent that they're used to. They grew up thinking as working class white men, things were going to be better. That's what they're used to. Used to since when? Because people were talking about angry white men in 1994. Newt Gingrich won the midterm elections in 1994, took over the House thanks to 
it was attributed to the angry white male. Soon after that, Charles Krauthammer began a column with this paragraph. The angry white male, suitably capitalized to indicate that the menace has become a media-certified trend, stalks the land, or at least the land of the media. In the 10 years before the November election, there were 59 Nexus references to angry white men. There have been 1,400 since. A post-election front-page headline in USA Today was typical. Angry white men, their votes turned the tide for the GOP. Here is Bill Clinton in 1995. This is psychologically a difficult time for a lot of white males, the so-called angry white males. Why? Because those who don't have great educations and who aren't in jobs which are growing, even though they may have started out ahead of those of you who are female and of different races, most of them are working harder for less money than they were making 15 years ago. See that? Bill Clinton, though untrustworthy, understood the political winds. Winds that have been blowing for 22 years, but I guess just recently were sensed or resensed. And that wind has led to, well, you've heard the talk because of these angry white men, these newly discovered angry white men, the Republican Party is cracking up. An entire party is falling apart. We've never seen this before in our lives. Well, maybe that's true if your life started in 1985. But in 1984, there was William F. Buckley talking about the end to an entire political philosophy. Uh, the failure of the Democratic Party in the national election is generally conceded to have told us something about the collapse of liberalism as we have known it during the past half century. So we have no representative here today of the first point of view to argue that Humpty Dumpty could be put together again accordingly. We will ventilate the other two alternatives. Yes, back then, uh, uh, liberalism was dead. The corpus delecti, or body of the crime, would indicate that there, there is no need to ventilate the now desiccated uh, cadaver. In truth, liberalism did change. It changed a little bit. It was hardly a crack up. Democrats controlled the House of Representatives for a decade more from that point. But back then, the GOP was pretty sure that they had won and the Democrats had lost because things had changed for good. And it wasn't just, as the most Republican of Republicans said in 1985. This, this great turn from left to right was not just a case of the pendulum swinging. First, the left holds sway, and then the right, and here comes the left again. The truth is, conservative thought is no longer over here on the right. It's the mainstream now. Well, the mainstream until Bill Clinton won the presidency seven years later. Though, as we documented, Newt Gingrich wrested control of the House in 1994. Yeah, but then Bush won. And then the Dems raged back in 2007. Time magazine drew a tear on the picture of Ronald Reagan's face under the headline, How the Right Went Wrong. Conservatives are gloomy. The Republican candidates are struggling. Can the party reclaim Reagan's legacy? In my mind, I said yes. Then again, I had the unfair advantage of remembering all the stuff that came before, or at least all the stuff I was alive for. I don't know. Can the party reclaim Reagan's legacy? You could argue that Obama won twice, so that would be no. Then again, during the Obama presidency, Republicans have gained 13 Senate seats, 69 House seats, 11 governorships, and 913 state legislature seats, including 30 state legislature chambers. 
the governorships have swung back and forth. And you know what? In the Senate, in the last 36 years, Democrats have controlled the Senate 18 years. Republicans have controlled the Senate 18 years. And the House has actually flipped seven times. That is enough to crack the cooling saucer. Now, I know all this only because I remember it because I have some context for the present. I tend to doubt that most change, no matter how grandly promised, will be seismic. And when it is seismic, I'll take a pretty finely calibrated Geiger counter to sense it all. Usually it is the swinging pendulum. And while Ronald Reagan used that as a device to say it's not just this, the great communicator actually was right. It was just that. In American politics, there is an ebb and flow, a taking of turns, a correction. There is rarely a storming of the barricades. This time, the revolution will be quite tiny. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi considers her a big tentacles Republican. The other Just producer, Mary Wilson, enjoys one-camera sitcoms, but multi-camera legislatures. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, sometimes wears sneakers to work, sometimes wears shoes. But whatever he chooses, he makes sure to ventilate the other two alternatives. Andy Bowers does not judge you by the type of pornography you prefer. Because as chief content officer of the Panoply Network, he knows there is a broad human spectrum of, oh my God, shut that, shut that laptop, what is she doing? The gist, while Hillary did a number on Bernie in the open primary and Bernie won in a closed caucus, the numbers 89, 409, and 809 as numbers are closed in primary. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, thanks for listening.